Um, we will uh, be in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25. So we, we actually touched on a few of the preceding verses briefly um, when we looked at the life of Joseph, and those verses had to deal with um, showing how poor that couple was. Um, so the, the verses we're going to study today take, take place immediately after that. Um, and today we're going to be spending most of our time studying a person named Simeon. Uh, but both Simeon and another person in these verses, her name is Anna, uh, share similar character traits that we can learn from. So we'll begin with a reading of our study verses. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to car carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his mother and father were marveling at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to, to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So let's just get a sense of time and place. We are uh, in Jerusalem, and for most of the world, it's basically business as usual. Like a handful of, a handful of people, maybe a, a couple and a few shepherds, knew what had happened about a month before. But to the rest of the known world, they, the assumption was that nothing, nothing really had happened. Um, and for about 400 years, there had been no prophet in Israel. And during those four centuries, Israel had been conquered and ruled over by one foreign power after another. And now it's the Roman Empire. So there's a lot to despair about. And during this time, probably most of them f felt more connected to their traditions or their religious practices than they did to God. So now let's travel to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, this, it's about 40 days after the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. And the scene we're about to study takes place in an area of the temple known as the women's court. Uh, women were basically restricted to just this area of the temple. They couldn't enter the inter inner court where most of the ceremonies were performed. So what do we know about Simeon? So he's mentioned nowhere else in scripture other than these passages. And his name is similar to the name Simon or Shimon. And his name literally means hearing or hearkening although another translation is God has heard. This is also the only place that we uh, see any mention of Anna. And her name, which is similar to the name Hannah, means grace. So 
scripture doesn't specifically say who Simeon was. Some think that he may have been a priest at a temple. Some think that he could have been a, a, a layman serving at the temple. Um, and according to verse 29, he was elderly. We don't know if he was born in Jerusalem or if he was born somewhere else and found his calling at the temple in Jerusalem. We do know that he was Jewish and not a Gentile, but that's about as much of a biography as we have about him. The Bible has a little more to tell us about Anna's background. Her father was Phanuel and she was of the tribe of Asher. Asher was the eighth child, eighth son of Jacob. And after the, after the exodus, the tribe of Asher was given the coastal areas uh, west of the Sea of Galilee, which included the towns of Tyre and Sidon. Um, and after the death of Anna's husband, she stayed in the area of the temple. And based on what we see in these verses, she's 84 years old. And that's about as much as we know about her. But we can assume uh, at the very moment that Simeon encountered Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus, Anna was present in the temple to witness what was happening. So Simeon and Anna were known uh, as what's called the believing remnant or the rem remnant of true believers, or the faithful Jewish remnant. These were Jews who were eagerly looking for the arrival of the Messiah. And when, when others were looking towards their laws and traditions to save them, this remnant held on to the hope that their Redeemer would come for them. And Luke highlights the fact that both Simeon and Anna are older people for a reason, because in Jewish culture and all, Asian, uh, all ancient cultures, um, elders were respected. And, what elders said in ancient times, and maybe even up to about 50 years ago, carried a lot of weight. Modern culture as we know it today tends to value youth over wisdom. And often the knowledge and experience of those who were older, that's often ignored. So with that in mind, let's dig a little deeper into the wisdom that Simeon had. Um, Personality-wise, there's quite a bit we do know about him. So starting in verse 25, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So again, we see the word behold. Um, and what's interesting is that in the ESV translation, the NIV translation, the New Living translation, and even the Amplified version, which we'll be switching back and forth with today, they leave out the word behold. Um, not sure why, but it... it it's necessary to include that word because, as Luke tells us, something very, very important is about to happen. So the first thing we're told is that Simeon was righteous and he was devout. And in most of modern culture today, the word righteous um, might typically mean a person is saved. Righteousness describes a person's outward or external pursuit of godliness. And it's, it's a pursuit of being right in the eyes of God. It's the same character trait that we talked about that uh, Joseph had when he was described as a, as a just man. We know this is also a character trait of Anna's because the Bible tells us that Anna worshiped with fasting and prayer day and night and that she gave thanks to God and spoke of God to all of those who came to the temple expecting the redemption of Jerusalem. But there's a trap in this that many of us uh, in this modern age may fall into when we think of righteousness because true righteousness, godly righteousness, is based on God's standards, not our own society's standards. The difference between godly righteousness and self-righteousness basically boils down to who are you trying to please? Are, are you trying to please God or are you trying to make yourself look good in the eyes of others? So now let's look at the word devout. When we say someone is devout, that's something on the inside. 
That's your devotion to God, a devotion that comes from deep down within your heart. The, the literal translation for devout, the Greek word that Luke uses, actually means taking a hold of something well, holding it carefully and holding it surely and holding it cautiously. So you take hold of what's good, you have a God-fearing respect for who God is and what his laws and commandments are. Being devout is a characteristic of someone who knows God's law through the reading of scripture, and it's a characteristic of someone who caref carefully observes God's law. And again, this is a callback to something that Michael taught on about two months ago about not just being hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So devout people hear and they do, not just hear. When you're known as a, as a righteous person, that's your character before other people. But when you're devout, that's your character before God. And notice that Luke doesn't say that Simeon was righteous and religious, because one can be religious and yet not devout. And the, the next thing we're told about Simeon is that he was waiting or looking for the comfort of Israel. Other translations may say waiting or looking for the consolation of Israel. So the, the Greek word that Luke uses for looking is actually in the present tense. So Simeon was continually looking for the consolation of Israel. He never stopped looking. He looked in the scriptures and he looked up from the scrolls and continually looked around for the one who was prophesied. And the Messiah that he was looking for um, would be the one who would be the hope of Israel, the only one who could rescue and bring comfort and consolation to a nation that had thought God had abandoned them. The, the consolation of Israel means the hope in the form of the Messiah, hope through the forgiveness of sins. And Simeon and Anna were looking for a heavenly hope while others were looking for just an earthly hope. And the final thing we're told is that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. The implication here is that the Holy Spirit was working within Simeon and working continually. And it's a, a misconception, even, even I have this misconception, that the Holy Spirit's ministry began on the day of Pentecost. But the Old Testament is full of examples of the Holy Spirit ministering in the lives of godly people in the Old Testament. Um, this is, but what happened to Simeon, what's happening to Simeon is unlike many instances in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit came upon people for a time because they were to perform a special service for God. So this shows just how closely Simeon walked with God, how strongly he, dedica he was dedicated to God. He held God close to his heart and as a result, God held Simeon close to God's heart. So moving on to verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So Simeon was given a promise that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. Now we don't know how this knowledge was revealed to Simeon, but we know from the verb tense of the word revealed that this was a revelation in the past. So imagine Simeon being told this and waiting for months or years or maybe even decades for this to come to, to fruition. But he waited patiently, he waited joyfully, and there's no indication that he waited in fear or that he was fearful of death. He lived with the confidence that he would continue living until this prophecy was fulfilled. And he wasn't wishing for death that we can tell, and if he was, that would have been very unfaithful on his part. Um, because Simeon was a, was a faithful man, and he drew daily joy by remembering God's promise. So also the word revealed also hints that the revelation was an answer to a prayer. 
So Simeon prayed often, and he prayed faithfully, and the prayer was answered at the appointed time. So he was righteous, he was devout, he was constantly looking. Uh, he had the Holy Spirit upon him, working within him. And one day in the temple, Simeon sees a poor couple and their baby, and we're told the following. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the child brought, uh, when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Um, so came in the spirit, uh, probably more accurate translation would be he was guided by the spirit. And how did this happen? How could the spirit have led Simeon? And the simple answer is that Simeon surrendered. Simeon surrendered to the will of God. And that's the only way this, the Holy Spirit can lead someone. And the timing for Simeon couldn't be more perfect. There, this wasn't a chance, chance encounter or just dumb luck. This was God's sovereign will over everything, bringing five people to one place at one moment in time, in the right place, in the right time, led by the Holy Spirit. And the way the temple was designed, the, the, as, as I mentioned earlier, the, there were places that women just could not go. So God put all of these people in the right place at the right time. And so Simeon knows right away that the child before him is the Christ. And so Simeon took him into his arms and blessed and praised and thanked God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to leave this world in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles to disclose what was previously unknown and to bring the praise and honor and glory of your people, Israel. So verse 28 says Simeon took the baby Jesus into his arms. And the word used here for the verb took means to receive something that's offered. So this is a physical representation of a spiritual reality. It's a physical representation of a person coming to faith. That we all have this choice in our lives. We can take Jesus into our spiritual arms and into our spiritual heart. We can believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, we can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him and the salvation that he offers. And we can take that word, his word, into our arms and trust that all he says is absolutely true. And that's what Simeon did. But before he did it physically, he did it spiritually. Verses 29 to 32 are often referred to the Nuc Dimittis, which in the Latin translation of the Bible begins with the words, now you let depart. And sometimes, depending on the translation that you use, it may read like a prayer or a hymn. But there's a third way of looking at it. Uh, you can look at it as a testimony. It's, it's a testimony that gives thanks because Simeon thanks the Lord Yahweh for allowing him to die in peace, for having seen God's salvation, and giving thanks that Jesus came to save both the Jews and the Gentiles. And we know that's a radical thought for that time in history because we know that the Gentiles were looked down upon and shunned and they're seen as immortal enemies of the Jews. But this shows that early on, God intended for all peoples to be saved. And this must have been a great joy for, for Luke, who, who was writing this gospel, because Luke himself was a Gentile. But what's often overlooked is that this testimony begins with the word, now Lord you, or in other translations, Lord now you. Because from the beginning of this encounter that, that uh, Simeon has, the one who's doing all of the action in this is God. Everyone else is following God's lead. And this is a, a, an important distinction to make 
um, when we give a testimony like Simeon did. Uh, how often have we said things like, I'm saved because of Jesus, or I'm forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary, or I'm blessed? And, and there's nothing wrong with making statements like that, but what Simeon is doing in his testimony, and what a lot of us probably haven't been taught, is that Simeon is acknowledging who's doing the action here. And, and this is how the ancient Israelites thought. The Israelites, prior to Jesus being born, prior to the exile, prior to the 400 years of silence, this was their thinking process. Much like Simeon received the Lord Jesus Christ into his arms, much like we received the offering of forgiveness of sins because of Jesus' death on the cross, we need to realize that we are all receivers and the one doing the action is God. So instead of I'm saved by Jesus, the words the ancient Israelites would most likely have used would have been, Jesus saved me. And instead of saying, I'm forgiven by God, the words would instead would have been, God forgives. And instead of I'm blessed, the words would have been, God has blessed me. So we have Jesus saves, we have God forgives, we have God blesses. In their mindset, God was always the one taking action. Because the emphasis of a testimony is about what God has done more than it is what we have received. And Simeon does this because he knows who is doing the action. He says in these verses, you are releasing your salvation, you have prepared your people. And how was Simeon able to do this? Because, he did it because he had the attitude of a bondservant as it's written in verse 29. And the literal translation of, a per, of that is a person bound into service without pay. But in the biblical sense, it's someone who is willingly and permanently committed to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this goes back to surrender and submission to the Holy Spirit. So regardless of, of how you want to read these words of praise by Simeon, whether it's a prayer, whether it's a hymn, whether it's a testimony, it's a joyful set of words that speak, to the, the, the speak hope to a poor couple and to Anna and to the believing remnant who heard this. But then in the next set of verses, things change because after this testimony comes a warning. And his legal father and his mother were amazed at what was said about him. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, listen carefully. This child is appointed and destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed and a sword of deep sorrow will pierce your own soul so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. This is the amplified version. So suddenly hearts begin to sink. Just, just like a few weeks ago, we had the joy of Christmas, which just passed. We now have to face the reality of who this child really is. Yes, he's the son of God. And yes, he's the long-awaited Christ, the, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. But great pain and sorrow is coming. And these words are only spoken to Mary because through the Holy Spirit, Simeon knows that Joseph will not live to see Jesus begin his earthly ministry, but Mary would see everything. So first, Simeon prophesies in the spirit that Jesus is appointed and destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And it's written in Isaiah chapter 8, verse, uh, verses 13 to 15. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you are to regard as holy and awesome. He shall be your source of fear. He shall be your source of dread, not man. Then he shall be a sanctuary, a sacred, indestructible shelter for those who fear and trust him. But to both the houses of Israel, both the northern and southern kingdoms, Israel and Judah, 
He will be a stone on which to stumble and a rock on which to trip, a trap and a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many among them will stumble over them. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and trapped. So when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, um, what he said was and still is offensive to a lot of people. Yeah, he made claims that the world still considers outrageous, like being the son of God, or he's the only way to the Father, or that he is in fact God. And how we respond to who Jesus is will determine how he deals with us. He can be our solid foundation, the rock upon which we stand as the song goes, or he can be this rock that's constantly in your path. No matter how hard you try to step over that rock or go around that rock, you will still trip over it. Jesus is the stumbling stone to our sin. He's the obstacle to our sin. When we prefer to do things our own way and to believe and trust in, uh, if, when we prefer to do things in our own way and trust in our own knowledge and trust that we can do things on our own, that he will get in our way. So the next thing Simeon tells us is that Jesus will be opposed, and through that, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So the Greek word for opposed means to reject, to deny, to contradict. So Jesus' faith is sealed. He will be rejected by many who he came to save. He will be opposed by the religious elite, and he will be condemned to death and killed. Jesus will be opposed because he represents both God's saving love and God's wrath. He won't be the God that most people are looking for. People in, in ancient times and people today want a God that gets involved in their lives just enough to get them out of a problem, but they don't want a God to rule over them and tell them what they can't do and where, where they can't go and who they must worship. They don't want a God who demands their obedience and surrender and self-denial. When people encounter Jesus, there will be no doubt what's in their hearts and what their heart is pointed at. And what's in our hearts and for what we treasure, we will be judged. We can see the cross of Cal when we see the cross of Calvary, we either see God's love and our need to surrender to him and his saving grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Or when we look at the cross, we're disgusted by it, rejecting the saving grace of God and thinking we can do whatever we want to whoever we want and, to, and that we can still save ourselves. Two of the three things that Simeon says in these verses are meant for all of us. But the third thing that he says is meant for Mary alone. Simeon says that a sword of sorrow will pierce Mary's soul. And, and you can see that these words are actually interjected into the part where he says that Jesus will be opposed and will reveal what's in the hearts of many. And, and the Greek word used for sword refers to a long sword. So it, it's not something small, but it's a sword like a Roman gladius, which is about this long. And the Greek word for piercing doesn't just mean that it's one stab. It means a constant stabbing over and over and over again into Mary's heart. Because this refers to the sorrow that Mary will experience when her son begins his public ministry. As her son is rejected, as her son is ridiculed, as her son is persecuted and slandered, and abused and finally executed on a cross. These are very, very heavy words for Mary to hear. Which leads us to five lessons and four questions that we need to ask ourselves. And we'll use Anna for the 
the five lessons here. So we're told that Anna in Luke chapter 2, that she did not leave the area of the temple, but was serving and worshiping night and day with fastings and prayer. She too came up at that very moment, so referring to that very moment when Simeon encountered Mary Joseph and the baby Jesus, and began praising and giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all who were looking for the redemption and deliverance of Jerusalem. So the first thing we learn about her is that she, con she constantly studied the word of God. So how much time do you spend in God's word? God's word is spiritual food for a hungry soul. Is God's word as precious to you as it was to Anna and Simeon? Is it a daily priority for you to spend time reading or listening to a few verses or chapters in the scripture? The next thing we know about Anna is she never lost hope. So John actually touched on this last week in his lesson on prayer about how there's hopelessness in this world and perhaps more than ever. And he mentioned that he was shocked uh, that an 18-year-old would take her own life because of the hopelessness that she experienced. And we have continuing worries about the pandemic. We, we worry about a possible recession. We worry about our jobs. We worry about a slow burn to what could be World War III. We worry about what people think of us. We worry that we're not getting enough likes on social, our social media accounts. We worry about natural disasters. And there's also worries about the opposition that genuine Christians are facing in modern society. And Anna, like many of us, had concerns about her world, about Roman oppression and many other things, but she had hope and she placed her hope in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the next thing we can learn about her is she was dedicated and never ceased to worship. So her dedication showed in her fasting and her praying. She didn't give in to many of the things that are designed to, to waste everyone's time. Like for us, it's internet content, it's social media content, it's other activities that are pressed upon us um, that are meant to constantly distract us. So she worshiped through service, she worshiped through prayer, she worshiped through fasting. And one thing that some preachers have actually highlighted recently is that um, a lot of people in their congregation have been complaining that they're not getting anything out of the worship service. And that's, and that's the wrong idea to have of what the uh, worship assembly or a worship service is all about because that type of worship, the type of worship that expects what can I get out of it is that's a worship that robs God of what solely belongs to him. Worship is about God. Sunday worship isn't about what we can get out of it, and it's, it's not about being entertained or catered to. Worship is about what we're supposed to be giving to God, which is our praise, our adoration, our thanks, and our service. The next thing we learn about Anna is she knew Jesus was the Savior, and she gave thanks. Because Anna genuinely belonged to God, God the Holy Spirit guided her steps. And because Anna submitted and surrendered to the Holy Spirit's leading, she too crossed paths with Jesus. And her hope was, actually, was fulfilled. And she gave thanks to God for seeing the hope of redemption for all mankind in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the final lesson from Anna she witnessed, she witnessed to others. She shared the message with everyone at the temple because she knew there were others in Israel who were genuinely waiting for their Messiah. 
she spread the glorious news of what we today call the good news or the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, questions for us, for the believing remnant. And the first is, are you being led by the Holy Spirit or are you being led by your own desires? So the, the Holy Spirit in Scripture convicted people of their sin and urged repentance. And he draws out a person's faith and draws people to God. So how do you know if you're being led by the Holy Spirit? It comes down to transformation. Transformation is, the whole, is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in you. You go from being a slave to your own desires and to your own sins, and you're transformed. A person without the Holy Spirit looks at the cross of Calvary and is revolted by the judgment and the wrath that it represents. A person transformed by the Holy Spirit can look at the cross and see the saving grace that it represents. So how are you being led today? Second question, where do you find consolation in this world? And so it's written in um, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So consolation is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you don't have a longing or an aching for his return, then you're not finding consolation in him. If you're lonely, consolation is not found in getting into a relationship. If you're unhappy or feeling inadequate, consolation is not found in burying yourself in your work or a hobby or some other activity. And if, if you're hopeless, consolation is not found in self-medicating yourself on alcohol or drugs or anything else. Consolation is only found in the grace given by God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the leading of the Holy Spirit. Third question. Is Jesus the foundation of your life, or is he a stone of stumbling? So Richard Lenski wrote in the 1800s that men fall solely by their own guilt, and men rise up solely by grace. So Jesus is the impediment to our sinfulness and our transgressions. Jesus can either be your deliverer, or he can stand in opposition to you. Jesus will cause every single one of us to make a choice. You can either accept him or you can reject him. We all, we all know this, and human beings that we are, sometimes we want to buy time. We don't want to make that decision. But for all of us, life could end after the next breath. And, and Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians that we were dead in our transgressions, but the believing remnant will be raised up with Christ. And the final question, are you willing to surrender? So for all people, there will be a time that the white flag of surrender will go up. And for most people, uh, though, especially those who truly don't believe in Jesus, that surrender will be at the end of their lives when it's too late. The believing remnant has to be different from the world and has to surrender to the will of God the Father. You have to trust that, the only, that only the sacrifice of God the Son is what saves you and redeems you. And you have to submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit. During the Christmas season, we anticipated the birth of Jesus Christ. 
and his coming into the world. But he's coming again, and he's coming a second time. This time for his church, for today's believing remnant. So we have to wait expectantly, and we have to wait with hope. And we have to wait with the same joy and thanksgiving as Simeon and Anna.